Hey, this is Daryl Eddington, and I'm here with my person that I love and co-host. That's me, Jordan. Jordan Crook, a person who yes. loves Daryl. And also, if you can hear his squeaky toy, Jet the puppy is also here. He loves both of us. That's right. And both of those things are important and relevant to today's episode of Found, a weekly podcast from TechCrunch where we speak to founders. So... The reason that they're relevant is that our guest this week is Rob Schutz, who is a co-founder of Roe, and he's also the chief growth officer of Roe. So you're still probably wondering, like, wait, why is that relevant with the what love stuff? What does that stuff? have to do with you guys loving one another? Why? And also the, the puppy. And the puppy. So... <laughs> Layers. The answer to the first question is that Rob actually shared with us that love is an important part of his relationship with his co-founders at Roe, which was super interesting. Not something I heard before. Initially, kind of thought it was a joke, but not a joke. It was total, he's very serious about it, and it's cool, frankly. And then the other reason, so the puppy thing, is that Rob used to be the VP of growth and one of the earliest employees at Bark, now Bark, formerly Bark Box. So, you know, lots of dog love going on. And just in general, it's like the only thing that matters in my life, as you can hear. I have a new puppy. Yeah, Jordan has a new puppy. And as I can attest from weeks now, the, the puppy is the majority of Jordan's life. It's essentially all that Jordan is. I mean, I'm never <laughs> actually looking into the camera anymore on a hangout. I'm just looking to the left and right. On all our meetings, podcast recording, she's just running around and the dog, you see the dog running around and then you hear it barking or <laughs> playing a dog. No, he's good. He's, he's very good cute. Boy. Very cute dog. So He'll be good one day, I promise. Yeah. That's what we're doing right now. And that also parallels to the podcast because that's right there's an investment of time to create a really cool and good successful startup and i think the the row is a pretty is a company that's well on its journey it's later stage and we haven't had a ton of founders who are at that right point so it was interesting to talk about yeah we got to talk about kind of Rose progression which began like it began as row men which was uh very narrowly focused on ed and men and like treatments for that but then has since broadened its focus to be kind of more generalized it's cool to talk to rob about how they got from a to b and also where they're going next so that's about the long and the short of it and also we talk about dogs in there too I think we covered a lot. We covered a lot. So enjoy. Hey, Rob. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me, Daryl Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. Jordan's here as well. Listeners. Yep. Don't worry. <laughs> She's still here, guys. <laughs> I don't know why uh, I wouldn't be. I don't know why you have to. It's weird. <laughs> Rob, so. Uh, we're, kicking this, we're kicking this off with a weird undertone that I feel like you'll have to talk about after the <laughs> session, but. I'm excited to get into it. I just like to give a wellness check every every episode that Jordan is still here, still present. It's <laughs> uh, so much creepier. Please, can we pivot? Please. Oh my god. Uh, okay, okay. Let's talk about Row first, just so people have a the stage set of Rob, where you come from, and what you are doing here. So yeah, can you give us kind of the elevator pitch on Row? Sure. Yeah. Thank you, and thank you again for having me. Some folks may be familiar with how Roe started. We started as Roman, which was initially focused on men's sexual health. Might be surprised to learn how we've evolved over the years. We're, we're now a fully vertically integrated primary care platform. And what that means is we are 
the only healthcare company in the country that has seamlessly integrated virtual care, online pharmacy, and in-home care. We offer that across now 20 plus conditions on our platform. We have a cash pay mail order pharmacy with thousands of generics. We're able to now send providers, nurses, phlebotomists to patients' homes uh, for diagnostic data. We've also built out a national provider network that is licensed across all 50 states and DC. And we will have fully operational 10 physical pharmacies across the country by the end of this year. So we operate 10, we'll have 15 by the end of next year. And so we're really, really passionate about building this fully integrated platform that connects you know, telehealth, diagnostics, and pharmacy. We've been live a little over three and a half years. And in that time, we've facilitated over 6 million uh, digital health visits and health patients across basically every county in the country. So that's like the longer elevator pitch, like for going maybe 20 floors. It's a high rise, high rise elevator pitch. There's a lot to cover. You're one of the few people we've had on, or you're, and Roe is one of the few companies we've had on that's undergone, I would say, one of the larger changes. Like we've had a lot of companies on there pretty early and some of them might pivot later, but they just honestly haven't had a chance to do that kind of like big transformation. Not, like Roe, it's, it's like not so much a pivot as related, but it's still like, it's a big change from what you originally started out as to what you totally. are now. Totally. So I would love to get into how that happened and when that happened and what what that was like for you. Yeah, a lot of directions to go there. I'll, I'll start with the philosophy we've always taken, even back to prior to launch, was really this concept that is pretty common in D2C. And I can talk more about my days with BarkBox and how some of that applies later. Yeah, you got two dog owners on the podcast, so I we're going to make you talk more about your BarkBox I'm, catering, I'm yeah. catering to my audience here. Yes. <laughs> but in healthcare, it's been kind of an uncommon tactic, but we call it jobs to be done approach. Like jobs to be done is really this concept of like market to people based on what is important to them and meet them at eye level. And so for us, you know, when we think about telehealth, telehealth has been around a long time. 20, 25 plus years. And the challenge with telehealth companies, legacy players has always been they've tried to be really broad. You know, I've tried to be a little bit of everything to everyone, right? Like we're the doctor in your pocket, we're here where and when you need us. And actually creates more of like a cognitive load on like the consumer, the patient. They're like, okay, like what do you do? And be like, we do everything. What do you want? And turns into like, all right, I'll try and remember to download your app next time I have a sinus infection or UTI. But we took this approach of just meeting patients at eye level with jobs to be done and thinking about like, what is most important to a patient? What do they wake up anxious about, right? If somebody is having issues being intimate with their partner or they have crippling acne or they're trying to quit smoking, right? That's probably one of the first things they think about when they wake up in the morning or when you look in the mirror or when you sign on to Zoom. Like the first thing you're thinking about is, I've got this thing going on. I don't necessarily either know where to start or I'm embarrassed to talk to a doctor about it. But what we found is being really specific, like, hey, look at our TV commercials, see us in their feed, hear us on your favorite podcast. And then being able to understand they could go online, they could talk to a doctor and they could, if it's safe and appropriate, get something shipped to their home. They could do that from their phone on their couch. That's very liberating Mm -hmm. for people. And we've always had a desire to build a really large healthcare company that can help millions of people, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. But we've been very strategic about how we start that relationship. So for us, it's all about get the foot in the door with something people actually care about. And then over the course of time, you can go deeper. You can go deeper into their overall health, their underlying issues. You know, It can be hard to get people to care about something like if you take a cholesterol, for example, like 
for better or worse, like no one wakes up and they're like, my cholesterol hurts and I have to, you know, deal with my cholesterol. Like people care about what hurts or they want to look better. And that's how you start the relationship. But then once they have a relationship with the provider, the provider has access to their medical records. They have 24 seven access to be able to communicate with them and ask questions. It becomes a lot easier for providers to say like, hey, I see you have a family history of high cholesterol and I don't see any labs in here for the last couple of years. Let me send somebody to your house over the weekend that we can talk about next week. That's so much easier once there's already a relationship versus like trying to run billboards for get your cholesterol checked. So right, it's right, really right. this concept of get your foot in the door. And that's what we found early. Like we, we started with Roman and ED and that was like a, a great way to attract people to the platform. And we found really early on, even the first week, like people were asking the doctors about everything, everything to do with their health. But it was this unique insight of like, just advertise and talk about the solutions that we do offer that people really do care about. And that's the way to build a broader healthcare system. We have to start with things that people want. See, I just wanted to figure out the what is the cart and what is the horse? That's my main question there, right? Because like, it sounds like when you say that, the plan was always to, to do the broader health stuff, right? But you were like, well, let's let's do that. Or, or did it come the other way around? Were you like, oh, we're sending people out there and then or we're getting people connected with doctors and the doctors are getting these questions. Why don't we also address that need? Yeah. Oh, no. We totally had everything planned out perfectly in advance, Sarah. That's, <laughs> just, that's just how we plan. We knew exactly what we were doing. I mean, and you even <laughs> had the branding shift plan. You were like, oh, we're yeah. going to start with this brand. Absolutely. And then, yeah. Once we hit year three and a half, that's where the, uh, the brand exercise kicks in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, we took a deep look early on and I can go through how I met my co-founders and, mm. and why I think team was special and why we were actually uniquely qualified to, to run down ED. And spoiler, a lot of it comes from one of my co-founders and our CEO, Zach. He has had ongoing issues with ED. He's been very public about it. Right. We put him out there on TV commercials. He's He gets to be the face of ED. I get to be the voice for the voiceovers. <laughs> but he had a real unique experience. His dad is a well-known sexual health doctor that practiced for 40 years. There was just really good comfort level with that specifically. Plus, we also loved, loved, loved that it was a taboo topic and that it felt very felt a little snake oily, right? And we are very good at taking something that can feel a little bit snake oily and turning it into something that's legitimate and reputable by putting doctors behind it, by putting science behind it, by bringing in the foremost experts across the world to help write the treatment plans. That's something that was very attractive to us because honestly, no one wanted to really go there. They were afraid of they were afraid of this space. Well, I mean, snake oily things are snake oily because there's a real need, but then yeah. it's just like... It, but the need is like of a, a population that's particularly vulnerable, right? For reasons X, Y, Z, right? Yeah, so like, yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Because there's a need, and when you compare that with real science and doctors and you know a reputable company and and really focusing on that, it can be really exciting. So that's that's where we kicked off from, and then wait. So can I tell you something, Rob? Oh yes, I'm please. Chime in here because I feel like it's the perfect time. So we we had a conversation with Rick Heitzman, not on this podcast, on Extra Crunch Live. Mm-hmm. And he was an investor in Roe, yeah. as you you know, I do. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> and he said something to me that really resonated. And I've been like thinking about it a lot, which is that the patent, right, for, is it Viagra, expired like right around the time that you guys were tackling ED. And he mm-hmm. said like it was this extra secret, right? Because like you already have like a problem and a solution, 
and kind of like the ingredients that it takes, right? Like the team is well poised and blah, blah, blah. But then there's this like extra layer that I feel like is so important for startups, which is like this one little secret, like especially in the early fundraising process where people are like, that VC that is so trained to say no, right? Like to everything, here's like, oh, wait, that's the button right there, totally. right? Like we felt like there were a couple secrets. The, the the patents were one of them. It actually turns out that the vast majority of medication for ED specifically is off label and has been off patent for for many years. Uh. But that was something that really resonated with people, especially investors. When it was like Viagra is going off patent, I've seen those weird bathtub commercials for 20 years, like we can make a business out of this. For us, one of the most exciting things and why we wanted to go down this path of telemedicine to start was actually the way that the wind was blowing around telehealth and the regulatory environment at the state level. So for those that aren't well-versed in state regulatory uh, laws around telehealth, it's <laughs> Me it's and Jordan managed. know full well, but for everyone else listening. I have all 50 states <laughs> right up here. <laughs> we realized and we could see that more and more states were starting to embrace a lot of what was happening at the federal level and opening up the opportunity to connect with a doctor. And it's called establishing a physician-patient relationship through asynchronous or synchronous telemedicine. And so the ability to now establish and to legally be able to prescribe if it was safe and appropriate was actually one of the really big unlocks. And then the treatments themselves could go in a variety of different directions. And it's still an ongoing process where every state has their own modality, meaning what is required in order to establish that relationship. But the fact that more and more were warming up to it and it was becoming more commonplace with guidance from Centers for Medicare and Medicaid was really encouraging. You could see where the trajectory was heading. And then you could imagine, yes, you can start with one drug and off patent. There are a lot of single molecule drugs that were coming off of patent in the next 10 years, but it could be applied across the board and done in a really safe way that was legal. And in many times, the care could be better than it than it might be in person, just in terms of the amount of information a provider could collect, the amount of follow-up they could do, et cetera. So that was all happening already. And then I have to imagine it was also accelerated by the pandemic, right? So like that ends up being, I mean, obviously there's no way you could have predicted it. Nobody could predict it, but like, obviously global pandemic, awful thing. But like the business is in a great place for what happens in healthcare at that time. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic was not in our four year plan, right. but we were able to move quickly there. I mean, I think what was very encouraging was like very early on, I guess it was March 2020, when everything kind of started to unfold, we were able to launch the first online telehealth assessment for COVID across the board, which was incredibly exciting. It was something a team felt very passionate around. They put together over the course of the weekend, and we could build on top of the three years of technology we'd already built. So people could come in, they could enter any symptoms they were experiencing, exposure they'd had, travel. It would essentially help triage and either connect someone to a provider or give them more asynchronous feedback. And then you fast forward a year later in March 2021, when the vaccine started to come out, we were actually the first company to launch at-home vaccine drives. So we we were able to partner with New York State and we helped vaccinate thousands of underserved members in Yonkers, actually, as part of a pilot program. And again, just kind of came back to we have and continue to invest so deeply in our vertically integrated platform. The fact that we can send nurses to people's homes through our dispatch software. The fact that we have a nationally licensed pharmacy that can provide access to the medications. Those are just the COVID-specific things, Daryl. But in terms of overall for the business, I mean, yeah, I think COVID, we say COVID kind of pulled 
future forward by about 10 years when it comes to telehealth, right? Yeah, it sped everything up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because now people are much more comfortable and they're not likely to want to give give that up anymore, yeah. right? That, that kind of care paradigm, right? Yeah, and I think yeah. our job got easier in that, yeah, you don't have to explain the value of telehealth as much. People mm-hmm. understand that like, no, if grandma doesn't need to physically go to the doctor, telehealth is actually really beneficial for her. Yeah. But that was something that was kind of a forced experiment throughout the course of COVID. And we're big believers that in general, more and more patient journeys for healthcare will start online, will not ever replace physically seeing a provider, but we'll start online through content. You know, we did a survey recently about 2020 healthcare experience. We found the majority of patients, I think it was just under 70%, were starting their care for the first time on our platform. And it just kind of points back to like, it's how people want to initiate the relationship for a lot of these conditions either because of convenience or, you know, during the pandemic because of safety or not everyone wants to look a provider in the eye and talk about embarrassing conditions for 30 minutes. So, yeah, this is no scientific back of it all, but like people just generally, that's like how they start most of their conversations and relationships these days, right? Yeah. It's like you'd begin digitally, you begin via text or whatever. So internet very hot right now. Yeah. Very hot. Yeah. Right internet, now. you know, it's doing pretty well. Yeah. This is where the, all the dog <laughs> memes live, I believe. Big fan. <laughs> <laughs> so I I do want to talk about you touched on it before, but like the you know Ro and Roman have had some pretty interesting marketing campaigns and ones that have gotten a lot of attention, right? So and and your role is is chief growth officer. So like, how important would you say the role of branding has played? This is where you get to say I'm the most important co-founder, mm-hmm. but like. <laughs> how important is that to the company because there have been others and there's been a field but i do feel like part of rose success is attributable to like the brand and the fact that the brand is quite good like i mean i personally just really like it i, oh, I find thank it you no i appreciate it yeah. I'll, I'll take the compliment <laughs> yeah I, look i think one of the challenges for us early on was actually more around making sure that the brand is highly reputable and associated with legitimacy, especially where we started, right? We started in sexual health on the Roman side. And so making sure that we were attaching ourselves, one, to partners who were reputable and putting those logos next to each other would, would help enhance the brand. But then two, just yeah. making sure everything we we're doing, you, you have a different responsibility, I think, when it comes to healthcare than you do even with dog toys. Right. You know, it's... It's people's lives, it's their livelihood, it's their health. And so we have always taken our job very seriously as marketers in terms of what we put out into the world. Like there are other brands who've done amazing jobs that we're big fans of, but have taken more of like a let's be the millennial version of of healthcare. We welcome those folks on our on our platform, but we also are building a more mature brand that is catering to a more mature demographic, quite frankly. Like the average age on Roman for the men's health clinic is 46 years old. It's an older demo, and that's something we're very comfortable with. It's where people need to go to the doctor more often. Like, There's room for everyone on the platform, but we also feel very good about wanting to make sure that I can present this to my dad, and this makes sense and builds trust with, with that type of demo, just as well as you know, resonating with someone my age. So yeah, I think it's been a big driver of growth and opportunity there. And you know, we are, as you alluded to earlier, Daryl, we're going through some brand exercises right now. I think you know, I like to say that we earned the right to go really deep and build like a proper brand architecture over the course of time. But a lot of companies do it very early and they have like a beautiful brand architecture and no business. And we prefer to be on the, the other side of that. These brand exercises, are they focused on like the expansion into women's health? 
And like, what? how much do you think about how women have, you know, received the brand over the past three and a half years? Yeah, absolutely. To the first part of that question, Jordan, I think this is all part of making sure that our overarching brand is accessible to everyone, regardless of how they identify. And that's been some of the limitations of the initial brand architecture is it forces folks to identify sex at birth or however they choose to identify, there should be a door where they can enter the ecosystem. You know, and in terms of, you know, women's health overall, we are incredibly excited. We announced a few weeks ago our acquisition of Modern Fertility, which is an mm-hmm. amazing team out of SF that has, has built an incredible company, really focused on personalized women's health, starting with the fertility journey and following that cycle. And what we really enjoyed from talking with that team, with Afton and Carly, two of the co-founders, was they were using a very similar approach where you know, our foot in the door, our jobs to be done initially was starting with like men's health on the ED side. Theirs is very much starting with fertility as the foot in the door for the women's side and using that as a wedge to talk more broadly about someone's health overall. So we love that approach. We, you know, we want to help supercharge what they're doing. We're a big fan of, of the team overall. And yes, I think over the course of time, there will be a brand exercise to understand how all this comes together and everyone's you know, you're not running TV spots for five different brands and people don't know they're associated with each other. But again, I think that's something you can do over the course of time as you mature as a business. And, you know, it's nice to be able to do that in private a little bit and bring the brand and cohesiveness to a good place. And then you can really start to pour the gasoline on the fire once you're in that spot. I guess I'm asking this question because I've heard like it's so anecdotal, but like I've heard some women talk about Roman and like men getting this easy access to whatever medication for ed mm-hmm. and it's like not necessarily like i don't know it's there's a maybe a hint of resentment of, around it from some women like right like why is this problem getting addressed right but not, exactly right. like there are a lot yeah. of problems around women's health care and it just feels like oh we're making it easier for like people to get yeah. viagra and like you know and i think yeah. that doesn't it's not necessarily like roe or roman that gets that feeling i think there are a lot of things in the world that you know that that sentiment is applied to but i'm just thinking as you expand into women's health if that that sentiment is something that's real that you guys also see in the data or i don't know how closely you look at that but like how do you think about something like that yeah it's a great point jordan i think you know we've even prior to modern fertility we've taken several pretty big shots focusing on women's health and having that be as large if not larger than the men's health clinics is a goal of ours we think it is a incredibly deep industry and there's a lot of great work to be done there. It's been tough to be honest. We you know when we launched we our women's clinic Rory initially launched as a menopause brand. Just focus on, you know, vaginal dryness, sweating, hot flashes. The the challenge comes down to like one I think efficacy of treatments is one where you can actually bring people in and help them at a high a high percentage of them with with things that mm-hmm. they actually want access to. There unfortunately aren't as many efficacious treatments when it comes to women's health and women's sexual health. Right. Which is another criticism that is often levied in the same way, right? It's like the money doesn't go in at the research level, at the basic science level. Right. right. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's tricky for sure. But I think that's part of why we're excited to try this different wedge with modern fertility. And they found a lot of traction starting more with fertility than, than like a sexual health or even contraception. But again, we think more about this aggregation theory. Like how do we bring 
tens of millions of people onto the platform and then give them access to all sorts of different services that can be helpful that are completely gender agnostic, right? You know, hmm. you might need to go to a urologist if you identify as a man. You might need to go to the gynecologist if you identify as a woman. That's a good wedge. But then what are the other doors in the hospital as you walk through that make sense if you need you know, access to skincare or mental health or the pharmacy or weight management, whatever those might be. But it's more about how do we actually bring people in the ecosystem, help them with things they care about that are important to them, and we can build frequency and build trust in a relationship, and then over time, go much deeper into their overall health. Yeah. And on both sides, you see why those ones make sense as the wedge, right? It's like, if we can solve these things for these for these people, they're going to trust us for all of their issues, right? Like, totally. It's the, and yeah. that's why we take a really long time horizon on all this. Like we think about, we want to build a company for decades. We want to build trust. We are not, you know, we, we go out of our way to build trust early on at the expense of revenue. It's actually a principle that we have, like hmm. patient safety and patient preference greater than patient revenue. And so we'll email people every time they're going to get a new refill. Do you want this? Do you want to delay this? Do you want to change your, your you know, your dosage? Do you want to talk to your doctor? It's not a game of how do we get someone to get, you know, you get another, you get an extra box of your meal delivery kit, right? And you get it and you're like, ah, whoopsie, doopsie, I'll just eat it, right? Right. Prescription medication, it's it's slightly different. <laughs> and we found that yeah. those types of things, if you instill that mentality into the team, we're always thinking patient first because we're thinking about somebody coming to us in 20 years when eventually they need access to another one of our services. So it is it is the benefit of long-term thinking and, and putting that into practice every day. With all these things too, like we were talking about how they build trust, but like the converse is also true, right? Like if you mess these things up, the reputational damage is massive. It's, it's like not recoverable in most cases, right? So it takes a lifetime to build trust and it takes about two minutes to, to throw it away. So right. totally, right. totally resonates. But I do like also like, and I've talked to Zach about this as well, but like the incentive alignment there that you're talking about is not something that's present with a lot of US care providers, right? Mm -hmm. Because the payer relationship messes things up quite a bit, right? Because it's like, my relationship with you extends to the end of your employment with my actual customer effectively. Right. right. And then I don't give a shit. Yeah. Except generally I give a shit about <laughs> there being able-bodied humans to sustain my needs or whatever, you know. There's but a like, whole podcast episode just on Z talking about insurance. So you could, you could cue that one up. But yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> the incentives are really misaligned across the industry. And I think healthcare is honestly one of those, one of the few remaining industries where the patient is not at the center and actually voting with their wallet, right? Like you get an EOB sent to your home. You have no idea how to read that. I don't know how to read it. And it's not for you. It's for your insurance company, right? And you're like, you're much more willing to accept subpar care when you don't feel like you're the one paying for it. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's yeah. this example of if you look at cash pay medical procedures versus things that are covered by insurance, you know, you go to get an MRI, it's probably the same machine that's been around for 20 years. It's way more expensive than it was. You probably wait in the waiting room for 45 minutes and, you, you know, you get it done versus you go get LASIK. They'll probably, you know, roll out the red carpet and you get cucumber water and you're, you're in and out and competition has forced that to 10% of what it was a decade. So there's just, there's a misalignment in the system and that's why... Being cash pay and being outside of insurance right now has allowed us to, one, just scale really quickly because none of our engineers spend time coding for medical billing. And then two, just the ability to have more competition that drives down prices and increases care and quality overall. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, I mean, I'm Canadian, so which I bring up every podcast. 
so it's always tricky for me to like navigate the U.S. healthcare system, right? But like to me, as I talk to multiple providers, all kinds of people on both sides, like that ends up making the most sense to me, given that you'll never adopt our beautiful, idyllic healthcare. No, <laughs> there's plenty of problems with our healthcare I hear system. Everything like, is perfect in Canada. <laughs> just copy all of that. Yeah, 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 but like I, I don't think socialized healthcare is coming to the U.S. anytime soon, and so something has to happen to enable better access. And it yeah. sounds like the direct relationship is the way to go, based on everything that I've seen. Right? Yeah, so. we're we're bullish on that over the long term. Like, there's no doubt that insurance is a good vehicle. Like, insurance is necessary, but it should be for right. things that are risky and very expensive, right? And we've kind of built it around. Insurance should cover everything. And then incentives are misaligned because, you know, the only way where certain types of companies can make more money is if they charge more. And yeah. it's just insurance a, doesn't function if it covers everything because it's not that's not how it was intended to work. Right. Yeah. Imagine if you were just like, oh, I'm what's my house insurance? Does it cover like, oh, look, I chipped this paint. Like, I guess I'll repaint the whole house like my insurance covers it. Like. It makes no sense once you start taking it to absurd abstract, which is kind of what it's like in, in the healthcare system, yeah. right? And hopefully your your um, homeowner's insurance adjudicator is not listening. <laughs> so you'd like a refund for that paint job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're listening to Found, you're probably already super interested in startups and the overall startup ecosystem. So we've got a great deal for you. We're going to offer you 50% off either a one-year or a two-year subscription to Extra Crunch. Extra Crunch is TechCrunch's premium product offering. And when you go there, you'll get deep dive interviews with some of the top founders in the industry. You'll get market maps on specific verticals and some of the most exciting areas of growth in startup land. You'll also get uh, surveys of some of the top VCs in different areas, including different geographies. So you can subscribe to Extra Crunch at extracrunch.com. That's probably the easiest way. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, follow the links for Extra Crunch and you'll get a prompt to subscribe and then just enter that code that's found, the name of this podcast, during checkout and you'll get 50% off on either a one-year or a two-year subscription. We mentioned BarkBox, but I, I do want to kind of talk about like your transition and like from that to this, like it's very, it's such different industries. Like for you personally, what was that adjustment like? And we can maybe get into a bit of like how you met your co-founders and how that all came together yeah. to start too. Yeah. yeah. Where's the best place to start? So many dog years ago. <laughs> you know, I think the easiest piece just to set context, I had a daily deal website back when those were a thing. So when Groupon and Living Social were were big. 2009, 2010 was the heyday. I had come out of healthcare technology consulting and was kind of looking for something faster paced. I was like, ah, this internet thing looks cool. So I wound up doing that, working with some friends and then selling the company soon after Groupon announced they were going public because I really had no idea what I was doing, to be honest. (laughs) And was kind of bouncing around and trying to figure out like what came next. I was very much a generalist, you know, and had to do a little bit of everything. And I remember getting really good advice where my friend said, you kind of just need to pick a path, like just pick something. Mm. It's really hard for me to help you or for anyone to help you if you're like, say you can do any type of job because you're not a specialist and you're also like not so senior that you can do anything you want. So I wound up falling into happenstance through General Assembly, actually into like user acquisition marketing. So it was 2000. 11. Now it's just starting to become a thing. Performance marketing, user acquisition marketing. Facebook didn't even have newsfeed ads yet. And so I kind of was like, this sounds pretty good. 
you know, I was kind of doing some of that prior in the deal days, but I just didn't know what any of it was called or how to do it properly. So I wound up meeting the Bark Gang at a career fair, actually, in New York, and was very early there. It was employee number seven, and they're just kind of figuring out what was going on. Like everyone there loved dogs, and they're still trying to figure out the the business model. <laughs> but it was great. We got got to be there early and like experiment with a lot of channels. Like I remember launching Facebook newsfeed ads and like the first day of that. And like one of the co-founders there, Carly, she was like doing her like business school rounds and she was like, what have you done to help the company today? And I was like, <laughs> well, one, I don't love that question, but it's your company. But two, <laughs> I think we just got like 20 new subscribers for like $5 each through Facebook. And she was like, oh, that's pretty good. We should do that. Yeah. So it was cool. It's like coming from healthcare consulting where things are so slow. Now I was in this world where like every day you could launch new stuff and you could see impact. And it was like yeah. exciting, right? And so over the course of about five years there, I got to build out the team, got to spend money, got to launch channels, got to fail a lot, which is a big part of growth, to be honest. Most of the stuff yeah, you're going to try is, is not going to work. But the faster you can do that, the, you know, the quicker you're able to move on to other things. And so, yeah. So at that time, we were at a office in Canal Street where BarkBox had floor two, four, and six of this building. And one of the founders of Bark is this guy, Henrik, who also ran a venture development studio called Prehype. And they basically worked with big Fortune 500 companies and they helped them create little startups within their companies. And through through that association, I met Samana Z, who are by now two of my co-founders. They were on the fifth floor and they would always kind of like come down to find me and they'd be like, hey, we're like trying to launch this like little business. Like, how do you do Facebook ads or like search ads or like tell us how email works? <laughs> and I was like, one, how'd you even get on this floor? But two, you, you know, it was a good chance to, to jam with them and learn about kind of proper startup areas. And so kept in touch with them. Both are very special people and extremely talented in unique ways. And Saman has this really unique background. He came from advertising. He also like runs engineering and and really good with HR and people teams. He he left and actually started a company called Managed by Q in New York, which is right. a smart office cleaning company. He was a co-founder there and then rolled off after many years. And then he kind of came back. I was like looking for his next thing. And I had like mental note, Saman ever comes up for air. Should talk to that guy. And then he introduced me to Z, who is this force of nature who he had a startup that went through Y Combinator years ago, but he's just very, you know, connected in the like medical legal investor and had this you know this story and relationship with with his his health that was really unique so we all kind of got together and i was like i like this team there's a very complimentary team and one of the big mm -hmm. lessons for me coming out of this whole process has actually just been the power of complementary teams and how right. how important that is to the success of a company but we started talking and i was like i really like these guys i think this could be something special and then the challenge, and then it got a little bit real. And I was like, whoa, hold up. Because <laughs> I was reaching my five years at Bark, and Bark had this uh -huh. policy where if you reach five years, you get a paid three month sabbatical. Ooh, and I was like, that's nice. That seems pretty good. I would like to go to that. And then we were also having our second child. My son uh, was getting ready to be born. We'd also just bought a house out in New Jersey. So I was like, I kind of have a lot of things going on right now. So I was very excited and about the opportunity, but also like pretty nervous because I had so many, like how many life things do you want to change at exactly the same time? And yeah, I remember sitting down with my wife and she's very smart. And she was like, you need to think about if you're going to look back and really regret 
not doing this. If you're going to yeah, really regret yeah. not doing this, you should probably just do this. And I was like, you are smart and I love you and you are right. And so, yeah, so we kind of got going right out of the gates. Like I had a couple months overlap finishing with Bark, but they had already signed leases and started building out the pharmacy in New York and really, really got things moving. And, you know, we spent the first week or so just kind of like getting to know each other as people. It was really important right. to us to like, I didn't know their life stories. So I was like, tell me about your life and like what's important to you and your values. And that has actually become a very foundational thing for us where we will disagree about a lot of things and we will hotly debate things, but it, we know that we are aligned on our values and like what we care about and what we want to build. And if you have a foundation like that, it's much harder to get off track in terms of relationships. Right. And so we yeah. deeply invest in our relationship. You know, we have three, we have at least three meetings a week where we're just spending time together, updating each other on what's going on and just making sure we're staying really tight because I think we've seen throughout our experiences as well, good and bad, just like the importance of making sure that everyone's on the same page and aligned and actually even genuinely liking each other can go a long way towards yes. the culture of the company. Yeah, no, for sure. And we we just had to record another one where it, it was about two co-founders who like had very uh, overlapping skills and they had to kind of like, they sat down and prioritized like, these are the things I really care about yeah. and like, and assigned a number score so that in case of like uh, disagreements, they could go like, okay, well, we're going to refer back to the number score if we have to, right? Because then we won't get off rails and we'll be yeah. like, oh yeah, that matters more to you than it does to me, right? Like, Yeah. No, that's smart. That's smart. It can be tougher when there's too much overlap, when you're both right. really passionate and good in one area. And then you say, but we'll go higher in all the other areas, right? You can totally do it, <laughs> yeah. but it just requires more focus. Like you said, like you got to sit down and be really clear. And these conflicts and areas of friction are, if things are going well, they're going to happen more. Yeah. So really sussing that out is is pretty critical. And like a three person founding team can also be, it probably has benefits in terms of like, there can be arbiters. I don't know if you do that. Do you end up doing oh, yeah. like, okay, look, there's two of us. We really are butting heads. Now you're the arbiter. You do that. Totally. Yeah. Totally. It happens pretty naturally <laughs> where it's good. We, we, you know, we had a session a couple of weeks ago where, you know, there are two that kind of want to have a talk with the third and just be like, Hey, everyone calibrates each other. Like this is actually the benefit of, of having three people because if it's like one person saying something to one other person, there's no majority, right? No. Versus yeah. It's like, Hey, if, if both of my co-founders come to me and say that they are concerned about something or they have thoughts on something, even if I disagree, like I'm going to listen because yeah. that card doesn't get pulled all that often. And it's a right, great right. way to just like to check yourself a little bit, kind of like having a, a great marriage, you know, a great partner will, they'll check you all right. Yes, yeah, yeah. And our me Did and I hear Jordan's you say fake marriage. marriage? <laughs> 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 That's how we check each other too. Yeah. And at work and at work as well. But <laughs> yeah. and we have the ca the care scale as well. That's for the follow up podcast. I wanna I wanna listen to that episode. <laughs> Cutting room yeah. floor. It's not actually funny. It likes the mystery is all that makes it fun. Yeah, yeah. Once you take away the mystery, there's nothing to <laughs> There's nothing. There's not a there there. There's no secret, yeah. as they say. Yeah. So I do have more questions about kind of like the the company overall and like your your approach to culture building, right? Because you talked about the way that 
you arrived at that with the founders. And I, I one this is a really quick question, I guess, before it's kind of a weird hypothetical, but like if you had been setting up this co-founder relationship and you found you did not agree in some of these like first principle areas, like, do you feel like you would have walked at that point? I know it's hard to like retroactively imagine, but I mean, I think, I think there are some things where yes, you have to be aligned, right? You have mm-hmm. to be like one thing we aligned on early on is we want to build this company for a long time. We want to build a big company. We want to build it for a long time. Like yeah. it is totally reasonable for someone to say, I would like to build this for five years and then sit and try and make money and sell it or go public really quick. Like those are all very reasonable outcomes. But if you're not operating on the same plane and saying like, hey, we're cool with, let's go do this for 20 years and dedicate our lives to it. And we want to build something special. Like you just want to know that you're operating off of, you know, shared principles there. And then I think just in terms of values and how we treat people and how we think about our employees being our most important product and how we invest in them. I think that that is, it's one that's no one's going to say when you're sitting down and having these conversations that they disagree. That's one of those that you wind up seeing over the course of time. But that's one where I think if you're not aligned with what's really most important and where you're going to over-index and spend time and resources, I think it can, it can cause a, you know, a gap between people and can be dangerous, but yeah, I think you, you got to align on as much as you can early. And then a lot of it is, you know, when the rubber meets the road and you're actually doing the things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the definition of success thing seems ultra important, right? Cause you're, you can see how every major decision would effectively diverge after that point. If you had a co-founder who was like, look, I'm looking for a big exit. Like I want to build a SaaS company and sell it to Oracle in five years or whatever, like everybody else does. And then somebody else is like, well, no, I want to build a company for life. Like that is going to be completely incompatible because yeah. at every point, every major decision point, you're going to be like, you're no, just optimizing like for different things, all very yeah, reasonable yeah. things, but it's like how you'd go into, you know, co-founders is very much like going into a relationship. Yes. Like you, you have to be aligned on some of the bigger things and then have trust that you can smooth over everything else as you, as you go. Yeah. I mean, this comes up so often on this show and always in all our conversations, right? And people are like, I don't like this. I'm not comfortable with this, the fact that this metaphor is accurate, but it's also accurate, right? It's it's not a perfect metaphor, but I think directionally yeah. it, it's pretty spot on. Yeah, yeah. And it explains why Z has been pushing so early in our relationship to say that that I love him. And I finally just gave in and I said, this, you know, this is important to him. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Well, that's legit. I mean... That's interesting. Yeah, it is. Have we it said is. I love you to each other? Too? Oh, of course we have, Jordan. I mean, I, maybe it's... <laughs> I know I've said it to you probably a lot of times. Now, now I, I, mean, I love you, Daryl. I feel like I was saying out. it and it was unrequited, but I love you, Jordan, as well. Oh, wow. So. so we both felt like our love was unrequited this whole time? <laughs> How funny. The plot thickens. So a question then about kind of like vision and guidance, like obviously it's evolved over time, right? Do you have a reset conversation with your co-founders about those kind of core principles and say like, hey, are we still all aligned? Like, are we, how do we feel about... Because people change too, right? And people's life goals change and things like oh, that. Like- so like, do you do those kinds of deep talks regularly or do you just kind of assume that you're all on the same page still? Yeah, we, I mean, we have tried to be more structured about doing founder offsites where Sometimes we'll talk about principles. Sometimes we'll talk about 10 years from now. Sometimes we're going to talk about what's happening this quarter or this week and and really get into the weeds. We also, I'd say it gets forced a little bit more often. Like the pace of growth that we've been lucky enough to achieve has forced us to constantly be taking a look at where we're heading and reevaluating and making sure we're on the same page. Like things have moved so quickly, both in terms of 
you know, member growth and fundraising and just the healthcare industry overall, yeah. where we'll every six months, we'll publish a new kind of like three-year point forward strategy for the company. But that starts with, we will spend a day or two together getting really aligned on things. We will then bring that to our leadership team, debate that out, let people give input, and then kind of present it more broadly to the organization and let them, you know, submit feedback and, and ask questions, usually with like a an AMA. But yeah, just the pace of how quickly this industry is moving and consolidating. And it's important to set that North Star for us. But also, if we're not fully aligned, the team is not going to be aligned around these things. And so that's one of the the more important things I think we can spend time on as founders is like, what are we doing short-term priorities and then long-term moonshots? And then what is the proportional amount of time we're willing to resource against each of those to make sure they aren't getting mixed together? We can't have everyone working on moonshots and then all of a sudden the second half of the year suffers, right? So yeah. our job is to really be as clear as we can about what the goals are. Yeah, and I find that that's like... Like it's really easy for drift to set in. It's really easy for like your goals to seem aligned and then for them to like start to kind of like just go in different directions. And then you come back together and you're like, what happened to everybody's goals? Right. Like that. So yeah, it makes sense that you would check in regularly, especially. Yeah. Like you mentioned, everything's moving so fast right now in this industry for your company specifically. Right. Like another thing I'm curious about, just like how much do you involve the investors in that and like board members? Like, how do you think about those relationships relative to the, to the founder relationship? Yeah. I will be honest. I am fortunate in many ways, but one of the benefits of this three-legged stool that we have at the founder level is that Z winds up spending a lot more time with the investors than mm. Saman and I do, but that's part of his job. Like part of his job yeah, is he yeah. will talk to our investors and our board members every week or two and update them on things that are going on and strategies and understand what they're seeing and what deals are happening in the space. Like philosophically, we never want anything to be a surprise. Like board meetings for us should not be a surprise. There should never be information that's getting shared there that people haven't already had a chance to digest, react to, ask questions around. It's more time to actually spend time on strategy and taking advantage of getting a bunch of people in a room that don't get to spend a lot of time together. So we keep our investors really close in a lot of different things. And I think, again, given how quickly the space has been moving and interest in the space and the ability to fundraise, I think it's been an important aspect of Z's job and also just how we prioritize time and where it's best spent. Yeah, that makes sense too, though, that, that you're focusing it. You're like, okay, we have a three-person founding team, so we don't want to have our investors peppering every one of us all the time, right? Yeah. And like just he does a great job. Off. Him and Aaron, our CFO, do a great job of just kind of like trying to be a catch-all for all the questions and inbound and like let the teams operate and do their job. There's already so much going on. It's, it's greatly appreciated. And you love him. And that's true. There's love. I do love him. <laughs> Did you hear that? This is great. (laughs) I feel like we're all healing, don't you? Yeah, this feels very cathartic. Is that, do people use that to describe your podcast a lot? We do. I think people, yeah, we do. We do among (laughs) ourselves. People seem, I think, more relaxed going out of it than they do coming into it, which is good, right? But. Hopefully the listeners feel that way too. Or yeah, maybe I like hope so. A, a combination of relaxed and inspired. Mm. Yeah, because the goal is they go out so. and start companies. Yeah. And the cool thing too is that like we have these overachievers on and then there's Daryl and I. And so the listener yes. is like, okay, well, I've yeah, got we give them the an- aspirational <laughs> and I've got like, it could be worse. We give them and an like, Airbnb. It's like, choose your path. <laughs> yeah, oh, totally. We well, let them sit in between, you know? 
I think self-deprecation is a great skill for founders as well. So <laughs> don't cut yourself short. I could teach a lot. <laughs> I could teach a lot. Get a master class on that one. All right, Rob, if, if you want to share any like upcoming acquisitions that you guys are doing or anything, just if you want to throw some news at the end of the Drop podcast. Some that- Drop some news in there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if- like hit us with an exclusive, like something juicy and big. I mean, so many juicy things coming. <laughs> I mean, the one this is not as juicy, but I will shameless plug. We are hiring, you know, over the next 12 months, hundreds of people across engineering, product, pharmacy, marketing, ops. Please check out Rodaco slash careers for all those opportunities not as juicy as maybe you were hoping but um jobs are juicy hey heck if it helps people get jobs i mean that's more important anyway because i bet most of our audience cares less about scoops and more about jobs anyway the, the, the scoops is more for us so that's <laughs> that's a good service would you rather there. have a scoop or a job it's up to you yeah well, it's pretty good <laughs> yeah. But I like that there's this trend now emerging where people are like, oh, yeah, like this podcast will help me hire. And I'm like, will it? I hope it will. will. (laughs) Good. Tell me. Tell me if that's the case, because I would like to use that as a selling point. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. No, we're not. We're not savvy enough to do that. That sounds like something called monetization, yeah, which right. we don't understand. But what do you mean, make money off of uh, yeah, it? Yeah. Who was? It was our last podcast, and she was like, "Well, you guys should feel good because, like, you have a podcast." <laughs> and it's like, do you know how easy it is to have a podcast? You literally just talk. I mean, it's all about reach and distribution. You guys are you're, you're crushing it. That's true. All right, thanks, Rob. That's a great place to end it with you saying, <laughs> "You guys are crushing it." Note for Grace, our editor. She could just cut it there. <laughs> All right. So that was our conversation with Rob Schutz of Roe and Jordan. What did you think of our chat? I thought he's a really engaging guy. You can tell that he's like, thinks a lot about brand. I feel like he himself is like a brand in a way. Yes. But it was- <laughs> <laughs> kind of like your puppy. <laughs> a puppy is a brand. It's very squeaky, playful. Yeah, I thought Rob was very like brand oriented, but I thought it shone through in an authentic way. You can tell he cares very deeply about that, right? Like I think Rob is maybe the first growth marketer that we've had on the podcast with like the actual bona fides and resume to back that up. But yeah, he's he cares a lot about it. He thinks a lot about it. And it's obvious from our conversation that that's kind of where his real passion is. I like the little tidbits that were like slightly more emotional. I'm talking about his co-founders and what they bring to the table. You can tell that he's like very grateful to be part of a three-person co-founding team, which I also think is relatively unique and how they kind of divide things up. It's all really useful and and interesting. And I think like Roe is just a a really interesting company and what they've been able to achieve and kind of like, there's so many people rethinking healthcare from a business model standpoint or a technology or a data standpoint. And I'm not saying that they're not doing that, but they also just were like, let's meet the people where they are and like as who they are and like kind of be this very real strong brand voice in the market and see what happens. And I've been super successful with it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Founders hosted by myself, TechCrunch news editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch managing editor Jordan Crook. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni and edited by Grace Mendenhall. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. 
Our guest this week was Rob Schutz, co-founder and chief growth officer at Roe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 510-936-1618 for a chance to have your message played back on our future show. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. We'll be right back.